welcome to our session on digitizing the records of Philadelphia's historic congregations. We're going to explore how working collaboratively and sharing resources has made um, great initiatives possible, certainly something beyond the range of most of us individually. Six congregations and three archival institutions banded together to digitize the records of 11 of Philadelphia's historic congregations. Our goal was to make them available online through a unified portal. We were ultimately successful in obtaining funding from CLEAR, the Council on Library and Information Resources funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation through their Digitizing Hidden Collections project. We found individuals and institutions to provide technical expertise, and we began to recruit volunteers to make it all possible. We were asked in this program to share some of the problems that arise when you have this many organizations working together. So you will be hearing a lot about that moving forward. And the other thing that I should point out is that this is a three-year grant project, and a lot can happen within institutions over a three-year period. So that, too, results in a number of changes as you go through. The strengths of this project were in bringing together a diverse group of organizations whose archives record the earliest years of worship in Philadelphia. And it was also to place them in one unified, hopefully searchable database. The records themselves would be left with the originating congregation, but this would make them available to a worldwide audience. It also provides access to those with physical or geographical limitations um, that aren't able to come and see the records on site. And finally, it will be providing the congregations with a record copy of their documents, providing that important preservation element. Independently, most of these congregations would not have the resources to digitize their early records. Many don't have the resources to make them open to researchers uh, for visiting. But by banding together, we were able to make compelling arguments to partners in this endeavor, such as the University of Pennsylvania Special Collections Libraries, as well as funders. Our panelists today have been involved in this project from the very beginning. Nancy Taylor, to my right, is the acting director of the Presbyterian Historical Society and one of our lead partners. Nancy, a certified archivist, was the Director of Programs and Services at Presbyterian Historical when we started, just one of the changes. Um, and she's been absolutely wonderful in providing additional professional expertise for the project. She helped identify the first Baptist records which we brought in, um, helps with surveying of records, and so much more. Nancy's the one I can always turn to as a second, uh, for a second archival opinion. And she'll be discussing the project from the role of an institutional partner. On her right is Walter Rice, the founder of R&R Computer Solutions. Walt, our IT consultant, has designed the website you'll be seeing shortly, coordinated technical issues with our other partners, and written the coding that's gone into this project. He's worked with countless numbers of libraries, special collections, archive centers um, over the years and enabled all of us to make our very hidden records visible. Walt will be discussing the technology that made this project possible. And for a little background on me, I'm a curator and certified archivist who's worked in the Philadelphia area for more years than I will admit to. Um, and I have also, in that same time period, worked with a number of different religious um, organizations, so I had a good sense of the significance of these records. Finally, I'd like to acknowledge Mike Seneca, who's sitting uh, up here in the front Mike is the head of the Regional Digital Imaging Center at the Athenaeum of Philadelphia and has provided the wonderful images you're going to be seeing shortly. And Krista Williford from CLEAR is here as well, and she'll be able to answer your more technical questions at the end of the program. So to go into the beginnings of the project, um, and I guess if we can move to our next, oh, we did. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> technical issues here. So it all started at Christ Church. Christ Church was the first Anglican church to be established in, um, William, in Pennsylvania. William Penn, of course, founded it as a center for religious liberty, and the Anglicans quickly came in. Christ Church was established in 1695. And for many years, it was the church that not only Philadelphians worshipped at, 
but many of the nation's leaders, Continental Congress members worshipped here, members of the federal government worshipped here as well. Their archives have been carefully tended over generations by volunteers. I was brought in in 2005 to help them create a digital archive site. And we used those beginnings as a pilot project for this particular one. Our initial funding came from the Barra Foundation and later Pew Charitable Trusts. We put our archives and artifacts online um, using Past Perfect Online. That was our initial step in this process. We later scanned and transcribed the first three volumes of our vestry minutes and also um, created the access database into which we entered all of our baptismal, marriage, and burial records from roughly 1708 through 1900. But this didn't seem to be enough. I had always, and this is how you could access all of those records right now. It's hosted through GeoHistory. Again, the scanning was done at the Athenaeum for these vestry minutes, and Walt was the one who pulled all of these individual pieces together. So if you wanted to go to ChristChurchPhila.org, you too can start to search this. Some of this material is ultimately going to be pulled into the newest website that you're going to be seeing. Um, but as I said, we got these online. We got the database created in such a way that people could go in and see whether their great-great-grandfather or you know, great-aunt Sally was buried at Christ Church. But that wasn't enough for people. They really wanted to see the original records. And it seemed important to me to somehow try to figure out a way to get those original records online. In 2016, um, I saw that CLEAR had funded a project to scan the congregational records in New England. This is an extraordinary project that was undertaken by James Fenimore Cooper, Jr., who is a professor at Oklahoma State University, and Margaret Bendroth, the executive director of the Congregational Library in Boston. They were so successful uh, in this project that they then went to NEH for additional funding, and this project is continuing today. This told me that funders could see the significance of church records. But I didn't want to focus on just the Christchurch records, and I really didn't want to focus on just Episcopalian records. It seemed to me that um, it was time to try to spread out and gather in some of the other congregations that were such an important part of those early years in Philadelphia. Philadelphia's history of, of diverse religions lent itself to that more widespread collaborative project. And they also reflected some of the political and social forces that were um, in play at the time. They predate most official record keeping in the city. They were established, our, vestry, our baptismal marriage and burial records um, predate city directories. They certainly predate, in some cases, census records and things of that nature. They give us a sense of who commemorated life events in Philadelphia. Pew rent records are even better. They give us a sense of who was here on a consistent basis through the years enough so that they would actually pay rent for their pews and support the congregation. Vestry minutes reflect the social upheaval of the day. Here you see the, um, the resolution of the vestry directing the minister to cross out the prayers to the king in the Book of Common Prayer. This was on July 4th of 1776. And poor Reverend Duche basically was committing a treasonous act by crossing out those prayers to the king. Our sexton's records record the burial of the Native American chiefs who came to visit President Washington in 1793 and succumbed to smallpox. And they still lie in St. Peter's churchyard. So these are the records that are, for the most part, hidden from history. And this is what made this such a powerful project, I think, for um, Clear's hidden collections. We set early parameters. I was looking largely at churches that were established in the old historic district of Philadelphia. And for those of you outside the city, Philadelphia was settled initially between the two rivers, the Delaware and the Schuylkill. We are already north of the northern boundary. It was Vine Street in those days. The south boundary was South Street. Um, we made an exception for Gloria Day, which was in Southwark, um, but that was the one outlier geographically. 
I also set the time limit as being 1865. I really didn't have, want to have to worry about copyright issues or, frankly, privacy issues. So we then sent letters out to the various congregations that we knew fell within these um, parameters and asked them if they'd be interested in taking part. And we ran into some very early roadblocks. A number of congregations had already been approached by Ancestry to scan and get their baptismal marriage burial records online. No big surprise. Um, still other congregations had already given their records to collecting institutions. And when we reached out to some of those institutions, they chose not to join us for whatever reason. They too were applying on a different grant or whatever. Um, and others didn't have records that they felt really meet our, met our criteria. We then reached out to some of the institutions that housed the records of earlier congregations. Presbyterian Historical Society had the first, second, and third Presbyterian church minutes, as Nancy will be telling you later. Um, and the Episcopal Diocesan Archives also has some of the records that w were of great interest to us, including Bishop White's um, journal recounting the early founding of the Episcopal Diocese. The early pilot project that we undertook at Christ Church with, that I had showed you earlier um, gave us the partnerships we wanted to duplicate moving forward with this next one. Um, I couldn't imagine scanning with any other organization other than Mike's Regional Digital Imaging Center. Um, the images are just fabulous, and I know that the records are safe when they're at the Athenaeum. Um, and similarly, I couldn't imagine trying to do this project without Walt's technical expertise, who was just so good and so patient with these, sm with smaller struggling people like me, <laughs> who don't necessarily know all of the technical ins and outs of what's going on. Oh. I will warn you all that a clear application is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> the letter of intent is largely the application itself. And by the time we added all of our attachments, our application was in excess of 150 pages. Now, I will tell you that's partially because we had so many partners. <laughs> because with each set of partners, you have to have their um, organizational documentation, their lists of members, et cetera, their support. But I was incredibly lucky. Um, in the Christchurch Preservation Trust, who took the lead on this project, uh, their executive director, Barbara Hogue, was absolutely wonderful in shepherding this through, and her associate, Carrie Hagan, and they are not daunted by these um, voluminous applications. But one of the incredibly great benefits of CLEAR funding is that it requires no match. Unlike some other uh, larger governmental funding um, funders where you might have a 50-50 match or whatever, this was an impossibility for these small congregations. We really needed to be able to go to someone and say, we think this is important, we think we can really provide a great service, but we can't do it without your support. But our 2016 proposal to clear was rejected. <laughs> However, the comments were heartening. Um, the main concern seemed to be that um, they were concerned that perhaps the one reviewer was concerned that our long-term preservation, which we had proposed doing through Internet Archive, would not be sufficient. So we decided to enhance the project and try for the next round. We reached out to additional congregations and repositories, and our numbers increased in size from 9 to 11. We added um, the First Baptist Church Minutes that you see here and the African Episcopal Church of St. Thomas. And we also expanded our original date range um, from 1865 to 1870 because as Art Sudler, um, the historian for St. Thomas has pointed out to me, we would then be um, including the assassination of Octavius Caddo. Caddo was a very well-known African-American abolitionist working in the city, a wonderful school teacher, wonderful baseball player, and a vestryman of St. Thomas's. So this really hit the congregation hard, and it was something we really wanted to be able to include at, in this set of records. In the meantime, I decided that I was going to uh, brush up on my digital skills, and I attended the Conservation Center's Digital Preservation Plan workshop which was tremendously helpful, not only in adding additional information to my arsenal, but in adding additional connections. 
I've been working with digital projects since 2003, but the field is rapidly evolving, and so it's important to stay as current as you possibly can. One of the instructors at this particular um, seminar was Tom Clarison from Lyricis. And I reached out to Tom afterwards about this particular project. And he, in turn, said to me, you know, Carol, the American Theological Library Association has a new digital library that's empty. <laughs> They're looking for a partner <laughs> to test it and see how it will work. And so it was an absolutely wonderful fit for their organization and for us. Because who better to highlight our records than the American Theological Library Association? At the same time, the Athenaeum was developing even stronger connections with the University of Pennsylvania that they had already had. And we began to explore the possibility with their special collections library staff of having them do the long-term preservation of these records through their OPEN system. I also reached out to digital archivists that I knew, asking them to read my proposal, get their feedback, and ultimately asked um, several of them to join our technical advisory committee. We then called the congregations back together, got everyone's buy-in again, <laughs> and resubmitted our application. I can't emphasize enough how much you need in this process a really strong lead partner in order to make this work. Uh, not only is the application process um, a little overwhelming for many, uh, and time-consuming, but the reporting is not easy either. So you really do want somebody who has a good sense of how to handle these types of applications in your court. Um, I think it was also tremendously helpful for us to have the University of Pennsylvania, to have that academic affiliation come in. But in any event, just before Thanksgiving of 2017, we were thrilled to learn that we had been accepted and that our project would start in January of 2018. Um, this, of course, <laughs> in keeping with my theme of problems, was just the beginning <laughs> of some of the problems. So the first was getting the IP agreement signed. Now remember, I had to have 11 different organizations <laughs> signing off on this intellectual property agreement. And I had been dealing largely with the archivists, the volunteers, et cetera, the ministers, in order to have a sign-off on this by the governing bodies of the churches, the synagogue, et cetera, it was yet another educational process, and I cannot tell you, and Krista, please tell David how grateful I was to Clear's legal counsel for walking me through all of the questions and concerns that people had. They were just fabulous, and that was really wonderful. And so in January of 2018, I think Nancy and I started surveying. <laughs> it was, um, we were off and running, and Mike purchased a new scanner that would meet the needs of this project, and we started scanning with the Christchurch records because we already had good data for those. We knew what we wanted to scan, and we wanted to test out the scanner and see how it was all going to work. We developed um, procedures and guidelines for getting records to the Athenaeum, developed a job description for a metadata archivist, and um, began a search for that metadata archivist and convened a meeting of the Technical Advisory Committee. Which, you know, and on our Technical Advisory Committee, as I said, we had a couple of digital archivists. We, of course, had all of our partners. We had Jeff Cooper from the Congregational Libraries. Um, and some of these people were able to call in, but really just having that outside objective feedback is really good at helping us stay on track and think through things that might be beyond um, our normal expectation. Uh, within a few months, we held an open house at the Athenaeum to introduce everyone to uh, the project participants, scanning facilities, and their state storage materials to reintroduce the project participants to each other. Wall put together a fabulous um, PowerPoint that showed all of the images, past and present, of the various congregations. And we had a small exhibit of key documents um, set up in the Athenaeum as well. And we really just managed to ramp up enthusiasm with that particular event. We had, by this time, hired a soon-to-be MLIS graduate to help with the metadata, Carly Sewell, and we introduced her to the project at this point as well. So the logistical issues. Surveying the records gave us a bit more of a reality check because in some cases we were relying on estimates of actual page counts. 
It also resulted in our rethinking some of the records that we had that had originally been submitted to us as possibilities for scanning. For example, St. George's United Methodist Church has the early conference Methodist conference records. Uh, it's pretty much where Methodism got its start here. And when we looked at them, they were so dry. <laughs> and then Nancy and I found the minister's diaries, and they were so interesting <laughs> that I think we're going to try to do a switch out, perhaps, of some of those. Uh, similarly, when we looked at the St. Paul's Episcopal Church accounting records, some of them are wonderful. These are like little lottery books. You know, a lot churches relied a lot on lotteries in those days to finish off projects. But then we had this marvelous account book that you know had X number of pages to scan. It turned out to be the account book of John Wood, the clockmaker. Well, John Wood. The clockmaking industry would be of great interest to historians of material culture, but it's outside the parameters of this particular project. So I think John Wood's accounts are probably going by the wayside, although I'm certainly going to let Wintertour and that crowd know about them, um, and we will focus on something else. Um, getting the records to the Athenaeum for scanning was generally not that hard a job. We're all pretty local, but the Baptist records were in Atlanta. Um, Priscilla Eppinger, the executive director of the American Baptist Historical Society, brought them up with her on a trip north. Their, their um, main headquarters are still in King of Prussia via her Southwest Airlines, and they were her two free bags. And Mike ended up staying beyond all normal hours to get them scanned so that they could go back with Priscilla. More problems actually emerged as time went by. Again, three-year project. And archives are not the primary or even secondary um, mission of most of these organizations. Their goal is to provide spiritual comfort and support to the community. And we were reliant on volunteers for the most part, or people whose jobs might have been something else altogether. A number of our volunteers were older, so there were health issues that came into uh, play. A number of them uh, found themselves as being primary caretakers for someone for a short or long-term period. And in one really tragic case, um, our principal contact at St. Peter's died suddenly of a heart attack. We've lost people through reassignment of positions, retirement, budget cuts. The Episcopal Diocesan Archives has just recently moved to a volunteer basis. And we found we just have to have the patience and faith to move things through, that it will happen. We simply move the scanning schedule around. Mike's been very tolerant about letting us do people in multiple shifts. You know, he might have St. Thomas's records on one shelf and Gloria Day on another, but it, it will get done. But we had several goals with this project. The first, of course, was to make the records accessible online. But more, even Im as importantly, in my view, was to make people aware of the significance of these records. So in that sense, we've been doing a lot of outreach. We held a symposium at the Athenaeum just this past April, which had four different scholars talking about their use of these records. And it was there that we unveiled the new website that Walt will be showing to you later. And for a more general audience, we've taken part in a couple of History After Hours <coughs> programs at the Museum of the American Revolution. Um, this is where we also recruit volunteers for transcription. We've got an upcoming program at Christ Church on September 15th of um, just in the next few weeks. If anybody's in the area, you're more than welcome to come. Bill Quigley wrote a wonderful history of the Reverend Benjamin Dorr and his son, Captain William Dorr, who was killed in the Battle of Spotsylvania. Door struggled to keep Christ Church together during the Civil War. It was a very divided church. Philadelphia was a divided city. Um, this is the 150th anniversary of the death of Benjamin Door, and it's to his credit um, that so much of the church managed to survive. Bill Quigley used the records of the church to um, tell his story of the two doors using not only the vestry minutes, but the sermons. And so that his use of those sermons is actually what gave us the idea that maybe we need to be looking at getting these sermons online as well. So um, we're doing targeted updates for interested groups. Um, I had met with the Episcopal Diocesan History Committee to show them how to use this website uh, because they've been charged by the diocese to explore the role that slavery played in the early days of the church. And they were interested enough that they ended up hiring a student to help them do that research. 
We have a number of events scheduled for the fall at various congregations, and um, in addition to bringing those public programs into being, we're also getting the partner organizations together on an every so often basis to discuss the progress of the uh, project. Last fall, I think we did a whole little lecture on preservation. This fall, we're looking at doing something on records retention. So that's the basis of where we've been. Um, I'm going to turn this over to Nancy right now to talk about what it meant uh, to her as an institutional partner, and then Walt will pick up the technology pieces. Thank you, Carol. I first want to thank everyone for coming. Um, I appreciate your interest in um, religious records and in grants that can make those records more accessible. Um, you may wonder about why the Presbyterian Historical Society was a partner in this. We are located here in Philadelphia, but we are a national archives. So our holdings um, encompasses records from all 50 states, and then we have Presbyterian mission records from all over the world. So um, it, it was, I think, part serendipity that this is a Philadelphia-centered grant, um, and we were really excited to be able to take advantage of that. Um, Carol mentioned that um, it's really key to have a good, strong lead partner, and I want to thank both Carol and um, the Christ Church um, staff, because for us, um, as a national institution, um, we were able to kind of go along with this grant and take um, advantage of what it offered us, but we didn't have to really pay attention to all of those details um, that Carol and the Christchurch um, staff has done. And then as part of the grant, um, we also were able to take advantage of a lot of the um, technology. So, so how did working with an institution like PHS help Carol um, and the grant. Um, there are a lot of Presbyterian churches in Philadelphia. Most of them have deposited records with us. They are only on deposit if the churches are still active. And it just so happened that um, all of the early churches had records with us. So Carol was able to work with only one organization rather than um, the three. Um, that um, we ended up picking for the grant. Um, we have a permanent staff of professional archivists. There has been some turnaround, um, just as Carol experienced with some of the volunteer archivists in congregations, but I think that benefited um, Carol and the grant because um, there is some consistency in description. Um, we um, were able to offer archival expertise, and I really did enjoy, on a personal basis, working with Carol. Um, I got to see records and churches and archives that I never would have seen otherwise, so um, that's been great. More important for us as an institution, I want to say how the grant benefited us. Um, there has been a lot of research interest in Philadelphia Presbyterian Congregation records. Um, especially over the last two decades, and this has been um, more than just genealogical. There's also been a shift in the archives profession and in the mission of PHS to really emphasize accessibility of those records. So since our records um, were in an institution, they weren't technically as hidden as some of the other records that were in their congregations, um, and um, it was very hard to discover what individual churches or congregations had. It was easier to know what we had, but you still had to, for the most part, come to our reading room. Um, we're only open Monday through Friday, basically during the day, and you had to be able to come to Philadelphia to use those records. So um, it really did benefit us um, in order to be a part of this grant to increase the accessibility of these records. Some of them had been microfilmed. Um, you may be aware that um, a partnership with the um, Mormon Church goes back decades. Um, the Genealogical Society of Utah did a big sweep and microfilmed a lot of records starting in the 1960s. 
And then that um, has morphed into Ancestry. And again, they are after, in particular, records of genealogical value. So some of the first, second, and third Presbyterian church records, especially the ones that list things like baptisms and marriages, those were, had been available on microfilm. But again, you had to kind of know how to, how to get at those. Um, and so this opportunity for us to have these records digitized, and not just the microfilm digitized, but the actual original records digitized um, in full color um, with really high quality archival standards um, employed. And that was something that we were really eager to do. Um, we also, even though we're an institution, have um, funding priorities that make it difficult for us to just launch off and do our own digital um, projects. We are funded by the Presbyterian Church USA, and as Carol mentioned, um, we, that is a religious organization that has other ways to employ their funds than just funding an archive or an academic institution. So being able to take advantage of this grant um, let us do a project that we, were, um, we thought would have a lot of promise and, um, again, make those records more accessible. And then a final thing I wanted to hold up. Um, we are located in Philadelphia, even though we're a national archive. But we have really increasingly tried to make connections with the Philadelphia community here. Um, that has been a shift um, in our mission. And um, this was a way to solidify both our relationship with other institutions in Philadelphia, and then to make sure that Presbyterian history was a part of Philadelphia history, and not really just confined to people interested in Presbyterian churches. So all of those things really brought us to a point um, where we were so glad to be a partner in this grant. Initially, when Carol and I first started talking about this, um, I drew up a list for her, and there were 29 congregations that had existed in what, was, what is now Philadelphia um, that, had, that we held records to 1850, 29 separate congregations. That was overwhelming for me, and I think it was overwhelming for Carol at that point, too. Um, so as the grant started to focus more on um, really center city and the boundaries of kind of colonial and early um, Republic Philadelphia, we decided to focus on first, second, and third Presbyterian churches. Um, these congregations are actually still active. Um, first and second merged in 1950. So, and it continues as First Presbyterian Church. And then third is more um, popularly known now as Old Pine, or Old Pine Street Presbyterian Church. So it's, these churches are active congregations. Um, again, they had chosen to deposit records with us. They wouldn't necessarily have had the funds or the staff um, to do this. So um, we were very glad to take that on and um, again, to, to become partners in this grant. This is a, a birch print of second, um, circa 1799. Um, I wanted to say a little bit about these churches um, because they're important on several different levels. They're important to Presbyterian history. Um, in terms of the Presbyterian Church in America, the first Presbytery, Synod, and General Assembly were all organized and met initially in Philadelphia. The Philadelphia and Mid-Atlantic area was a real center of Presbyterianism in the colonies, and these churches in particular um, in this region are important for people who are interested in the formation of, of Presbyterianism. However, these churches were also really integral to religious history, and I would say um, to American history in this time period. Um, one um, significant development was the impact of the Great Awakening in Philadelphia, and in fact, that was the inspiration for the formation of Second Presbyterian Church. Um, when George Whitfield came through, um, uh, some folks that were really interested in that more evangelical um, style of, of worship, um, they decided to basically break away from first and form what was a new side church. So. 
Um, one of the, um, the first pastor of Second um, was a very um, important leader in the Great Awakening and in the news side um, uh, part of that. And then um, if you contrast that with First, and again, um, at, in the middle of the 18th century, really on opposite sides of theology and kind of structure, um, you have Francis Allison, who was affiliated with First Presbyterian Church, and they were both very significant educators during this time period. So if you look at these churches and what they're doing and the leadership and the people that they are touching, um, we really felt that these were significant um, pieces to lift up and make more accessible. And then um, unlike, I think, the Episcopal Church, where there was a little bit more um, tension between folks that supported the Patriot cause and people that were loyalists. Most of the leading Presbyterians in, excuse me, in Philadelphia um, did support the Patriot cause. Um, and you can see that through the minutes and through the sermons of the pastors there. This is an example of um, the session minutes from Second Presbyterian Church. And one really great thing about this grant is that it allowed us to digitize two types of records. So both records created um, by congregations, but then also, um, as Carol alluded to, the, the sermons of pastors. Um, and these had not really been accessible at all. This is an example of some congregation records. These are um, minutes of the session. And one really exciting piece for me is if you have these digitized, you get more of a narrative about what's going on. Um, if all we had accessible digitally before that were lists of marriages and baptisms, it's not that those aren't important, it's just it's, it's harder to kind of build a context and they tend to be used by different types of researchers. So uh, with this narrative, you really are able to start to put together more of a history of the churches and of Philadelphia. Um, the grant did allow us, though, to digitize other records like pew rent records and burial lists that had not been picked up by Ancestry. So not only did we um, have a chance to have digitized the narrative records, but then additional records that um, people need to start to trace individuals. I don't know if you can read this, but um, this is from 1778, and so it's the session um, tried to discuss the damage that had occurred to the church building during the British occupation of Philadelphia. Um, so uh, it doesn't say this here, but they actually, um, the British removed all the pews and used the, the building as a hospital. Um, the British abandoned Philadelphia in June of 1778, and so this is September. But by just reading this, you can tell they still don't have enough people to kind of actually have a good discussion. And the pastor still has not returned. Um, so this gives you not only a sense of some of the impact of British occupation, but how um, much time it's taking for um, the colonists to really start to reestablish um, their religious practices. So as I said, um, ancestry did um, come through and digitize our records. This is a screenshot from ancestry. So. They, we asked them to scan whole volumes, and they did that for us. Um, these, um, we started talking with them in 2012, so long before um, Carol even started to conceive of that initial grants project. Um, all of the scanning of all of our records um, of genealogical value, again, not just Philadelphia, they, they've, they've scanned records um, that we hold from all over the country. Those were all in Ancestry.com by March of 2018. And while I was very pleased with that partnership, I really wanted to be able to have a way to unite those records that were scanned by Ancestry and then the records that are scanned as part of this grant. And that will be possible because as our, our grant with Ancestry, they only have a three-year period when they have exclusive rights to the scan. So, in June of 2020, we're gonna be able to pull their scans into the system that, that Walt is gonna show you in just a minute. And then all of those records will be accessible in one place. So um, I, I am so pleased about that. Um, the other type of record that we were able to scan um, were sermons. And 
As you can see from this, this is actually blown up quite a bit. If you have any experience with 18th century sermons or other kind of manuscript notes, um, they're usually on pretty small pieces of paper, and then the writing is very small and hard to read. Um, so just scanning them and um, increasing legibility and accessibility, um, that they could still be somewhat difficult to access, um, was really a bonus for us. The, this is, in particular, is a sermon by Francis Allison. Again, he was an old side pastor um, and was an educator. And then the other set of sermons that we're scanning as part of this project are Gilbert Tennant. And so he was the first pastor at Second Presbyterian Church. He and his father um, ran an educational institution called the Log College, which morphed into the College of New Jersey, which then also became Princeton University. So um, Presbyterians in particular, um, not exclusively, but were very concerned with education and an educated clergy and what that meant. And so this really gets to kind of both a, a, a theological um, way to look at this time period. And so again, a great bonus for us as an institution. In conclusion, I really am so grateful to Carol. Um, she is the person who initially organized this and brought me in, and without her, I don't think we would be sitting here at all. Um, we were able, with the grant, to have the scanning done at the Athenaeum, which again was a real bonus for us. We do do some internal scanning at our institution, but in this way, we knew that we had a really great partner and we didn't have to use our own resources for that. Um, again, the technological innovations with Walt and the University of Pennsylvania and then the accessibility through ATLA um, has, is a way for us to get our records out more. Um, we have not yet taken advantage of the potential to have transcriptions, but that is something that um, the, especially the technical team and Carol are working on and none of these records have been transcribed. So that would be a whole new way to make them more accessible. So those are just a couple of uh, things that I wanted to lift up. Um, for us, it was totally a win-win, and I think that um, Carol also was pleased with having Absolutely. us as a partner. Absolutely. So, so thank you. So Carol and Nancy have talked about uh, collaboration from kind of an institutional perspective. Um, but it's also important from a technology perspective uh, to think collaboratively. Uh, and for technologists, this means standards and using best practices. Uh, and for a small institution, uh, lots of letters like these have become a high burden, right? A high uh, wall to, to climb over uh, just to get into this conversation. Um, but what it really does is it allows uh, small institutions to be on a level playing field with big institutions. Uh, one of the things that Carol has used in many places is past perfect, uh, and that's really geared towards small institutions, but it's a, a really um, closed system, right? They did a really good job building something that was useful for small libraries, small archives, and that means nobody in the, the large institution world uses it. So if you've got all your stuff in past perfect, the first question becomes, well, how do we get it out, right? Mm -hmm. um, but when we approach small institutions uh, with this thought of doing everything from a standards-based approach, uh, it suddenly makes conversations with medium-sized institutions like the Athenaeum and large-sized institutions like Penn possible. You can sit down at the same table and yes, this is, in the world of Penn, such a small collection, they really don't have time to think about it. But if you're coming with things that are already in the languages they speak, it's something that they start to think, well, maybe this does fit our mission of supporting the community and building uh, resources and sustaining resources in Philadelphia, right, in our community. Um, so something that would not have gained their attention before suddenly becomes something they can think about uh, because it's already in the language that they speak. So for this project, uh, we've got a whole bunch of things here. There was uh, an existing uh, project done uh, 
Andrew Mellon Foundation funded, I think, for uh, creating finding aids of hidden collections in Philadelphia, uh, another CLEAR project. Um, and that's all in EAD, and they spent, I don't know, they went way over their time on that one. Uh, but it was six or seven years that they spent going, you know, institution to institution, just creating some basic finding aids for what kind of collections existed. No inventories, but, you know, descriptive narrative of what was at these institutions. So what we're going to do, you know, as we do the inventories, as we do the digitization, we're going to go back and update those finding aids for these congregations so that we're building on the work that was already done and it makes them that much more accessible in context of the smaller collections in Philadelphia. Um, doing this with standard cataloging terms is important. Uh, so we're using mm -hmm. you know, Dublin Core for just about everything. Um, DPLA, Digital Public Library of America, kind of has a standard profile. It's simplified you know, so that it can uh, touch a wide range of materials. Um, but ATLA, for their digital archive, has uh, adopted this profile. And so we have as well. Uh, and it's something where, with materials that in many cases have not yet been cataloged, uh, by using a system that the largest union catalog of digital materials uses, uh, we suddenly make our resources compatible you know, with a, a larger group of materials. Pen for Open is using TEI. Uh, a real simple version of it anyway. Uh, so all these things kind of fit together uh, to, to make the data part of the project work. And then in terms of images, um, archival standard is still, is still TIFF files, uh, but we're using JPEG 2000 for presentation images, uh, and it's all being served through IIIF, IIIF uh, framework, so that uh, these things are viewable in a wide range of viewers uh, can, and can be reused in different systems. Um, and as much as possible, we're using open source software. One of the big concerns, particularly for a small institution thinking about a grant like this, is if we go with a commercial platform, it's got licensing costs, and when it's over, it's got maintenance costs. Uh, so an institution like Christ Church to have you know, a five or six thousand, or ten or twenty thousand dollar maintenance bill uh, for a digital library system after the grant is over—it's almost impossible, uh, and it just makes it, you know, a non-starter uh, for an institution to consider a project like this. But when we have larger partners uh, into whose systems these records are being integrated, and when for our own systems we can use open source software, uh, it becomes something that is sustainable you know, in the context of other projects and the, in the hosting of larger institutions, it's something that doesn't have a cost attached to it uh, and makes it much more palatable uh, to larger institutions and much more possible technology-wise. Just a couple uh, diagrams for you and then I'll show you the actual uh, website. Um, we kind of separated our workflows. So metadata is one. Uh, we're actually using Airtable, the free version of Airtable. It's just a, a web-based uh, collaborative spreadsheet uh, that allows you to set up, you know, authority lists and, and do multi-selects and so on. Uh, and so our inventory is done there. The list of things that are scanned is updated there. And that's where we kind of curate our metadata to get it ready. Uh, and then this is moved into Omeka, which is a, an open source uh, kind of digital library system, um, usually meant for smaller collections, but it works really well here. It fits the project perfectly. And one of the things that Omeka does well with a plugin is it talks uh, OAI. Uh, so that's what Atla is using to harvest from us. Uh, I have a, a small tool built that uses that to generate the TEI that Open wants, uh, and we'll pull data from there as well to crosswalk to EAD uh, in archive space, which we'll use to update the finding aids for the hidden collections project. Uh, so it's something where, you know, these standards all fit together, uh, and you, you need a professional technologist and you need professional archivists, right, uh, to help put the pieces together. But once they're together, this is something uh, that works really beautifully. Uh, these, these standards have matured 
you know, some over 20 years uh, or longer. Uh, but they're really in a place where when you're doing a project like this, uh, you don't want to invent your own. For the images, um, again, we're serving these through IIIF uh, and using Universal Viewer. Um, British Library was part of the development for that, a couple other uh, universities. And so it's an open source uh, component that lets us uh, have a very useful viewer uh, for our project. Uh, and those archival images are going to our pen. Um, in the grand scope of their digital collections, this is a drop in the bucket. So when we said, oh, we got you know, 20, 30 terabytes of images, they're like, ah, oh, that's nothing. Um, and so it, it becomes something where a major expense for a small institution to maintain that kind of digital archive becomes a nothing expense for University of Pennsylvania uh, to store that among their other collections. So it's a, an area where partnerships and having things that are standards-based uh, enables leveraging of resources beyond what a small institution has and even beyond what a medium institution has. Um, but all those pieces are important. Um, I don't know how to really to explain this, but a large institution like Penn moves very slowly. So if you came to them with this project and says, here's what we want to do, first of all, their overhead, we eat the whole grant up. Um, <laughs> and second of all, everybody's already doing their own things and, and large things in many cases. Um, so they're scanning all the uh, medieval manuscripts uh, in the United States at the moment. And so their scanners are busy and you can't get scanning time, you can't get development time, you can't get resources, because they have their own priorities. So Christchurch, even with great materials, can come, and Penn would say, we don't have time for it. right? We don't have the resources for it. Um, Christchurch can't do it alone as a small institution, but that's where kind of the, the medium size comes into play. So the Athenaeum, with a much more focused uh, collection, and much more focused programs, a much smaller institution, um, has that ability to be flexible, to shift, to handle a grant-funded project that devotes staff for a period of time, um, has the equipment that might have the time available on it to do a project like this. Um, so kind of all three fit together. You need Penn for the stability and the long-term you know, survival of a project. Um, they're invested in the community but they really can't move for you. Uh, the Athenaeum, on the other hand, can be flexible and can kind of shape itself around a project as it develops and provide the quick response necessary for putting a grant application together uh, and the revisions and everything else, you know, and instead of going through committees and, and up to the provost's office, uh, the executive director can sign the paper. Uh, so a medium institution really brings that kind of flexibility to the table. Um, but the small institutions are where the passion is, right? These are the people who know and love their records and have kept them for generations and know what they mean. Uh, so you put this small, medium, large together uh, and you get, I think, a beautiful thing, right? A collaboration that uh, brings resources that were not visible before uh, into public view. Uh, and from a technology point of view, my take is that standards make this possible, right? Standards enable the smallest institution to talk to the largest institution and to incorporate records in ways across platforms uh, that previously were not possible. So let me show you the site that we've put together and uh, some of the tools that got there. I mentioned Airtable, and uh, so this is our long list of inventoried and scanned materials. Uh, it's a lot easier to work in this list than to go record by record you know, in an editor uh, getting these things ready. But you simply have Dublin core fields across the top and your, your record's going down. Uh, and as these are updated, uh, they feed into Omeka. And so you have your resources here. Um, they meet up with a digital identifier, the, the Christchurch Sex and Burial Count Book, B367001. They're long and cumbersome, uh, but they join up with that folder of images with, uh, to make this 
a record that you can view. And this is the Universal Viewer. Lots of open source pieces here kind of put together like a puzzle that can feed those images and give you just an amazing uh, entry into those records. Um, and yes, there are other systems that do just this, right? And you go to any other website and you see things like this. Um, but what is special about this project is it takes institutions that have zero capacity for this and puts them together with other partners and with a clear grant uh, to make these records accessible in a new way. Uh, and what we're working on next uh, is we're taking our time a little bit, right, but pushing a little further to get the transcriptions and some tagging and some linked open data and things like that in place. Uh, and one of the reasons to do this a little slowly is Library of Congress, for instance, just released a new crowdsourcing transcription site. Uh, and so you can go get the source code for that and implement it, right? That may fit our project. It may fit our project with a couple of tweaks. Uh, there are a couple other options that we're looking at. Um, but when we get behind something like that, uh, we leverage this huge investment for this small project. You know, to us, it's a huge project. But in the scope of the Library of Congress, it's a small project. Uh, so these are things that we, we do with some patience from a technology standpoint so that we can put the puzzle together in the most effective way possible uh, for these collections. One of the, um, so the Omeka site that we have is kind of our working site, and you can go to this now. It's philadelphiacongregations.org, um, and you can, you can see our resources there as we scan them, they're available there. Um, the primary public site that we had promised is through the ATLA uh, Digital Archive, uh, and so they've done an initial load of our records as well. So if you go to ATLA's uh, digital library, you will see our records there. Uh, and again, a different view, but using the, the metadata that came through OAI, using the images that are served through IIIF uh, and Universal Viewer, you know, in a whole different system, in the context of a much larger set of church records, of theological history, uh, you have these very Philadelphia, very important records uh, fitting into that context. Uh, and so, you know, we've got, we've got a ways to go with getting transcriptions and some other things into this, uh, but uh, it's been exciting to see how this has grown and how the puzzle pieces have fit together, you know, from the very smallest church uh, to a really large university uh, and to see that the te technology links them all in ways that are uh, really nice. I'll show you a fun one. One of the slides was uh, minutes from First Baptist Church, and those Baptists are something else. First of all, for those of you used to reading uh, manuscripts from the 1700s, check out this print, right? Amazingly beautiful. We're used to, to cursive, and, and somebody took a lot of time to do this. Here's the fun one. <coughs> they, some people tried to arrange an uh, impromptu business meeting, and quorum is important in a Baptist church. So as soon as somebody said, let's have a business meeting, uh, two guys asked, Three guys left. Somebody else locked the door to keep anybody else from leaving. <laughs> and somebody else tried to go out a window to go get a constable. Um, and then they argued with each other and accused each other of you know, all kinds of things. Uh, one of the women snatched the key and opened the door. Uh, and bickering ensued. There's, there's the bickerings right there <laughs> ensued. Um, and they finally set a date for a meeting. And the next day comes and they're having their communion service and the person serving refused to give it to some of the troublemakers. <laughs> but one of them snatched it anyway, right? <laughs> so this is you know, a wonderful fun from 1758 uh, that you find in minutes. 
Uh, and you realize that a lot of these early congregations, you know, you have a, a core group of 10 or 15 people, but then the, the number of people who come and go uh, as different things happen in the context of early city life, um, you, see, you see these things in the minutes that you just don't see in the, the registers. Um, so having this narrative history is just a wonderful thing. Okay, you wanna do your slides, Carol? Yeah, we're just wrapping up here and telling you what basically where we're going from here. And Walt's already told you we're trying to get some transcriptions down. We're trying to uh, pull. We have um, the searchable access database from Christ Church. Um, I know Gloria Day has an Excel one. We're going to be pulling those in so people can hopefully type in Benjamin Franklin, and you'll find multiple entries for Benjamin Franklin. My goal is that you'll have Franklin renting the pew at Christ Church, paying money to Mikvah Israel for their new synagogue, and installing the lightning rod at Gloria Day. But that's going to take a lot of work and a lot of volunteer hours from different people. We also, of course, are pulling in those other records, as Nancy alluded to, those ancestry contracts are going to be expiring, and we hope to be able to bring them in. We're talking with um, the folks at Swarthmore and probably Haverford about bringing in some of the Quaker records, again, that were constrained by ancestry contracts. And we're holding a big symposium at the conclusion of the project. So if you're interested in learning about that, leave me your email address, and I'll make sure you get on an email list. Yeah. So these are just the recommendations if you want to try this. And um, I'm more than happy to talk with anybody that uh, wants to move forward and has questions about how to do it. But in the meantime, if you have questions for us, please raise them. Yes? Well, you talked about using the Latin materials in the project, and I'm wondering what sort of tasks you have volunteers doing. At the moment, we have volunteers doing transcribing. We're giving them links to the records and asking them to do um, basically a text or a word document that has what they see that we'll then be able to pull in. And what we hope to have is, like the Library of Congress crowdsource site, a site where you can look at a document, transcribe it, and a second person will also right. transcribe it. You compare the two and then approve the transcription. Yeah. Um, right now we're sort of doing the approval process and it's slow. But... Um, you're absolutely right, right about that. Because obviously the more transcribed records we can get on there, the more searchable the records will be. And I know um, I saw Art Sudler come in. The uh, St. Thomas's records are fabulous. They have like the Free African Society as well as the early years of St. Thomas's. And to get those into like a nice searchable database would just be awesome. So that is, that's our primary goal moving forward for this year. And if anyone has any ideas about how to recruit volunteers for that, please share them. <laughs> yes? I have a question about um, the technology side. I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could talk a little bit about what the relationship is like between the technology team and the entities that serve as an advisory group, and then the individuals, the institutions themselves. I'm particularly curious about um, if you felt the questions related to digital progress right. or anything. Um, but I'm particularly curious about how you So the, the connection that I have is I do the technology for the Athenaeum as well, and I've worked on a lot of the other projects. Uh, so what we had to negotiate was with ATLA and with Penn, uh, and we went open-handed and say, you know, here's what we want to scan, here's what we want to present, here's what we want it to look like, how do you need it? And in Penn's case, um, they import stuff, so it gets to TEI, but as part of that process, it's a, it's a spreadsheet. It's an Excel spreadsheet um, with the metadata and then a listing of images. And they can do table of contents in there and all that fun stuff. Um, so my job was to write a little bit of code that takes the Dublin core and turns it into their formatted Excel spreadsheet. Um, and so you know, those are things where partnership was easier because we came with open hands and said, what do you want us to give you? Uh, and that worked really well uh, there. And ATLA, you know, again, very um, helpful in that in that process. You know, to just ask what software are you using. You know, and it was it was a Hydra-based, you know, system that they were building. Now Samvera, uh, and 
they described kind of what they were looking at, and we headed in that direction, you know, to meet to meet that target. Uh, and it's something where we were flexible, and the standards let us be flexible. Other questions? Yes. Yes and yes. <laughs> so, so the, the straight transcription is important, um, but one of the things that we proposed and are looking to build into that uh, is tagging, and not just like a keyword tagging, but also um, kind of a more detailed tagging of events, locations. So we're working on uh, kind of a schema to represent, you know, baptisms and burials and deaths and burials are different things. Sometimes one death could have four burials. Um, and finding ways to tag this in narrative text. Um, so that will be some interpretation on the part of the person doing the transcribing, but makes it far more searchable. You know, and you know, Ancestry already does. You have a, a table, a register. And so you can, you can set the fields and make a table. right? But how do you do that for narrative text, where these things are described over a couple sentences? And really, you could put it in a register, um, but how do you how do you tag that? How do you search it? You know, so that's what we're thinking through and working on. No, I think full transcription is the first step, okay. right? And then this kind of tagging and linking is an enhancement of the full text. Yep. And with a lot of the early script and the way the names are. Um, you really need to read the whole thing before you can be confident what it's saying. Yeah. Other questions? Well, thank you all so much for coming. As Nancy said, we really appreciate your interest. I am supposed to remind you to fill out evaluation sheets. And I'm also supposed to let you know that the evening event buses will depart from the 17th Street entrance of the hotel, <laughs> if anyone's <laughs> heading on to those. And we're more than happy to stick, stick around for a few minutes to answer individual questions if anybody has them. So thank you very much. <laughs>